Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Some of you may have read about the British explorer Ernest Shackleton and the account of the 27 men who went with him in their attempt to cross Antarctica. Now temperatures around the South Pole, we know this well in Alaska, that temperatures around the South Pole, they can reach as low as 100 degrees below zero, a little bit cooler than where Evan was in Africa. When Shackleton advertised for men to join him on this expedition to go back down there, to go to Antarctica, listen to what it's reported that he said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. These are the men that signed up. They set sail in the year 1914, but they ran into one problem after another, just one problem after another. Their ship, the Endurance, was caught in the pack ice of the wet LC for nine to 10 months with great endurance and great suffering from the cold and the danger. They left the ship and they, they literally took the lifeboats and they pulled them across the ice and they finally reached Elephant Island. And that's not such a wonderful island in case you're thinking that you want to move to Elephant Island, but that is actually it right there. They had all hope gone of reaching their original goal, so Shackleton set his mind on the greater challenge before him, the challenge of trying to bring his men home alive. So what did Shackleton do? Well, him and a handful of men, they made the terrifying trip in a small open boat in the ocean to the nearest inhabited island almost 800 miles away. These are some of the roughest seas, a lot like our seas up here. And for over two weeks, they were on this tiny little life raft through hurricane force winds, seas as high as 20 feet. And then when they got to this other island, they had to make a 22-mile climb over a frozen mountain range in order to reach a whaling camp and find some help to rescue his men. Now, while Shackleton was gone, his men had made a crude hut out of rocks, and they put the lifeboats on top as a roof. And for months, they waited and waited and waited in this makeshift hut for their leader to come and rescue them. Well, sure enough, one day, a man ventured outside the hut and spotted the rescue boat. And you can see it there off in the horizon. He ran towards the other shouting that he saw a ship and the men emerged looking more dead than alive at this point, but thankful at the sight that their rescue had finally come. All 28 men from the Endurance survived. I believe that the Apostle Paul lived with this sense of purpose. 
I believe that the Apostle Paul lived with the sense of knowing his mission, knowing that the difficult journeys he faced needed to be overcome because there were people waiting to be rescued from their sins. You see, Paul was determined to finish the race, to keep the faith, giving men and women hope while constantly looking up and waiting for the blessed return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's look to our text Acts chapter 13, if you remember from a, a study or two ago in our, our Sunday morning series, Acts chapter 13 found Paul and Barnabas facing a mixed reaction from the Jews and Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch. And verse 45 had taught us that when the Jews saw the multitudes coming to hear the gospel, what happened? Well, they became jealous and they began to contradict and oppose the work of the gospel. The Gentiles rejoiced and they glorified the word of the Lord, but the Jews, they stirred up enough opposition that they were able to throw Paul and Barnabas out. Now, Paul and Barnabas, what did they do? Well, they shook the dust off of their feet and they went to Iconium, which was about 80 to 90 miles to the east. Down the main highway, known as the Sebastian Way, Iconium itself, it was up high on a plateau, not a lot of rain there, very dry. But the streams would come down from the mountain and they would irrigate the plains to the east of Iconium, making it a thriving center for agriculture. Now this was a trade town, this was a commercial center. It was famous for all of its orchards and for its weaving industry. So it wasn't a dead town at all, it was a lot going on there. Now it goes by a different name today, but it's actually still there. It's never ceased to exist from the days of Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas were there. And verse 1 tells us that Paul and Barnabas headed again to the synagogue of the Jews. And I feel like sometimes as we go through Acts that we've seen this movie before. Some of us feel that way in Jeremiah. We feel like we've seen this movie before. But this time we learn that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believe. But notice what we read in verse 2 here in the text. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. You see, these lost Jews poisoned their minds, causing the Gentiles to stand against not just Paul and Barnabas, but against the brethren, against the people with faith in Jesus Christ. But look at what Luke tells us here. He says, at Antioch, they had been kicked out, forced to move on. But here, watch what Luke says. It's very subtle. He says, therefore, they stayed there for a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, if you notice, Luke actually connected the reason that they stayed there a long time with what? With verse 2, with the unbelieving Jews stirring up the Gentiles, meaning instead of moving on at the opposition, what did they do? When the opposition came, they found that it was the very reason that they should stay to make a witness for Jesus Christ. I wonder if we think that way. I wonder if we consider the importance of our testimony, the importance of the mission before us. Again, notice the text. They were speaking bold in the Lord, meaning this was a work of God. This wasn't just mustering up enough courage to do it. This was a work of God. It was the Lord himself bearing witness to the word of his grace. It was the Lord bearing witness to the gospel message, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now there's an interesting dimension to this text. 
See, a lot of times as believers, what happens? Well, we want to see our loved ones get saved. Anybody here want to see their loved ones get saved? Of course we do. And sometimes we have this thought. Well, if somehow, some way, we could just prove that the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually true, that this would do it. If we could just prove, if we could just get it in their heads that it's true, they would believe. But take a look at what we read in verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews, and part with the apostles. See, here's what I'm driving at. Verse 3 is clear. Signs and wonders were given to authenticate the gospel message. They had signs and wonders. But yet, what do we find in verse 4? The city was still divided. Now, I am confident Paul pointed out the fulfilled prophecies of Christ. And I am confident that Paul taught the truth of the Scriptures. And even though the miracles were taking place, many of the city still refused to believe in Jesus Christ. You see, not even miracles will convince some people of the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the situation got worse until a plot was made to stone them. Now, this seems to be more mob violence than anything. And this was the second city that they were driven out of. And they fled to the cities of Lystra and Derbe. The region of Lyconia was to the east of Iconium. Now, the city of Lystra... This was about another 20 miles to the south of Iconium. You can see the journey they were making. And Derby was another 60 miles or so to the southeast of Lystra. So Paul and Barnabas, they're putting on some miles. They're hoofing it. They're making some progress. I mean, this is a good weight loss plan. If you want to lose weight, go on a missions trip and walk the whole thing. Don't pass by the statement of verse 7 that while in Lystra and Derby, what were they doing? They weren't just on a sightseeing tour. They were there preaching the gospel of Christ. They continued to preach Christ. You see, Paul wasn't afraid to preach the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And in the days of Paul and Barnabas, Lystra, you know, it was a small, small country town. It was located up in the hill country, and it was surrounded by the mountains. And it, its claim to fame, it's kind of funny, actually, its claim to fame was that it was the home of a military outpost, but not just that. It was also a place where many former Roman soldiers came to live. You want to know what it was? It was the retirement center for the Roman soldiers. It was a senior citizen's home for the Roman soldiers in the Roman army. Now, some refer to Lystra as the backwater of the Roman Empire. It was a redneck town. Let's say it like that. It was a good old American redneck town. Some, that's what it's referred to because the people there, they weren't exactly known for being the most educated group. They weren't known for understanding a lot of things, the Hebrew religion, the Greek philosophy. And we're about to see this in the text, that the people were superstitious and they were used to the rural way of life. But in both of these cities, they preached the gospel. And it was in Lystra that most of our text takes place. Now, no synagogue is mentioned. It's because it might have been a small Jewish population. But there is one man here that would be rescued that everyone in this room knows of. You see, Acts 16 teaches us that this was the home of Timothy. His mother... Eunice was a Jew, and his grandmother Lois was a Jew. And it might have been during this actual first visit right here that Timothy came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But Luke doesn't tell us. What does he tell us instead? He tells us something interesting. We learn in verse 8 that in Lystra there was a certain man without strength in his feet. Notice again the clarity that Luke gives. 
This man was a cripple from his mother's womb. He had never walked before. He wasn't a fake. He wasn't a fake. This man was someone that everyone in this town would have known was completely unable to walk. His legs would have been withered. They would have been weak. They had never been used in his entire life for walking. Verse 9, it teaches us that this man heard Paul speaking. Paul was probably speaking in the open marketplace. And whenever Paul was speaking, it wouldn't be too long before he brought up the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul had been preaching, and this man was probably listening to the message of redemption. Paul was watching this man. Paul was observing him intently. Paul saw this man had faith to be healed, meaning, listen carefully, that this man's confidence was in God. It is not. It is not. Let's be clear on this text. It is not that the man believed God would heal him. That's not what he's saying here. He believed God could. He believed God could. And in short order, Paul said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. Get up. And notice the reaction of the man. He leaped and he walked. You see the healing. When a true healing happens, it was immediate. And this man had never walked before, but this healing, it authenticated the message of the gospel of grace spoken through Paul. Now take a look at verses 11 and 12. Now they have a major problem. Now, when the people saw that what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Back on December 24th of 1906, a Canadian man by the name of Reginald Fessenden, he made a radio broadcast that was more than just the normal Morse code of the day. From his workshop in Massachusetts, Fessenden sent the Morse code message, CQ, CQ, which that alerted to all the ships at sea to expect an important transmission. Well, he allowed the men some time to assemble around the radios on their ships. And then they heard the unexpected. They actually heard the voice of Fessenden. And he read from Luke chapter 2, including the passage which says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And when he was done reading, he then played O Holy Night on his violin. Now I want you to think of the reaction of the men listening that night. All you're used to hearing is this constant beep, 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 Morse code over and over. The earphones that they had listened to so many times had only carried that simple, simple message. But now they could hear a voice. They could hear a man speaking. Now they could actually hear music over their headphones. See, their astonishment came because they did not understand the full power of the equipment in their hands. They did not understand the power of the radio. And I believe here in Acts 14, the men and women of Lystra did not understand the power of the living God. Amen? They didn't understand the power of the living God. They'd been exposed to the counterfeits before, but they'd never witnessed anything like they had just seen. Now notice in verse 11, Luke records that the people raised their voices in the Lyconian language. This is a key to understanding this text. Here's what this means. At first, Paul and Barnabas didn't even know what was going on. That's what the text is telling us. At first, Paul and Barnabas didn't even know what was going on. The people of this area understood the Greek language. The people of this area had no problem understanding Paul as he spoke in Greek. 
But their response that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, this was spoken in their own little language. It was an isolated language. It was only used right around that area. You see, Paul and Barnabas, they wouldn't have understood what was taking place. And these people even stated which gods they had thought came to visit them. Paul, they labeled as Hermes, also known as Mercury to the Roman people. Hermes or Mercury was the Greek god of public speaking and was considered the inventor of speech. Now Luke tells us in verse 12, Paul was labeled Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now Barnabas, on the other hand, was referred to as Zeus. The Roman name for Zeus was Jupiter, as the King James translates it. If it wasn't so sad, there's actually humor here. It would be kind of funny. Because Zeus was the main god of the Greeks. And what is the title? That's the title they gave Barnabas. Now why? Why? Well, it might have been that Barnabas was a, a bigger man, a large man, a strong man in comparison to Paul. And it would have made sense to the people that Zeus was allowing his messenger's messenger, Hermes, to speak for him. And remember, Zeus was said to be from Cyprus. And where was Barnabas from? Barnabas was from Cyprus. So if the people would have heard this, they would have made that connection in their heads. Now, a little bit of history will help us here. Bear with me. In this region, there was a very well-known legend. This is what the folklore of the day. This is what they would have understood that the legend taught that Zeus and Hermes had once descended to earth in human form. And according to this legend, these two gods sought hospitality from among the people. And they supposedly, in the legend, went to 1,000 homes. Nice, odd, round number right there. But they were rejected by everyone except a poor elderly couple by the name of Philemon and Bacchus. Now this couple not only supposedly took them in, but this elderly couple gave them their own meal in order to give it to strangers. According to this story, the gods rewarded the generous couple by transforming their simple little cottage into this magnificent temple with a roof made of gold and columns made of marble. But the inhospitable neighbors, they were punished with a massive flood which destroyed their homes and supposedly took all of their lives. So this is what the people in Acts had been taught. The inscriptions have been found close by, dedicated to Zeus, dedicated to Hermes. People of Lystra believed that these legends were true. They believed this stuff. And if they were, hey, they didn't want to make that same mistake. They didn't want to be wiped out by a flood. So what do you do? Well, you can imagine that when these two strangers show up, when God used them to heal the crippled man, they put it into the culture that they understood. They were not going to fail to honor the gods when they had arrived. So they started shouting out in their native language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. You know, here's a principle that's present in this text. It's present all throughout the Word of God. Satan has no problem using the praise of men to try to destroy a witness for Christ. Do you hear me on that? Satan has no problem using the praise of men to try to destroy a witness for Jesus Christ. Now, by the time verse 13 rolls around... Paul and Barnabas had started to understand what was going on. Because in verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, he showed up and brought an oxen and garland to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the crowd. 
You see, in their pagan way of thinking, this made sense. If you're a lost person, if you understood their religion, if you understood what they believed, this made sense. Because if Zeus really would have come down from heaven in the form of a man, it would have been this man's job to help the people make an offering to worship him. So once Paul and Barnabas got word of this, once they understood, once they figured out what was going on, they did everything they could to put a stop to it. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. I fear if this were to happen today, someone would start the church of Barnabas and someone would start the church of Paul. I think it would happen. As soon as Paul and Barnabas understood that men were giving them the glory that belongs to God alone, they told them to turn from the useless things to the living God, the creator of all things. Strong words here. Strong words because Paul believed the gospel. Strong words because Paul and Barnabas understood that this was not just a, another religion or another path to God. This was a path straight to hell. You see, it doesn't matter how sincere people are. It doesn't matter how nice people are. Maybe they even go to church. Maybe they even read their Bible. But if they worship a false god, if they believe a false gospel, they are on a path to hell. Christians stand with Paul, stand with Barnabas, because they stood on the gospel of Christ. Faith in anything else other than Jesus Christ is useless. Turn to the living God. Turn to the one true God in heaven. You see this worship by these people, at its heart, what was it? It was man-centered. It taught that if they worshiped the gods of the land, then these gods would reward them. This worship was based on emotions. And it didn't matter if they had a priest that was willing to lead them. If worship is not based on the truth of Jesus Christ, on the truth of his word, then it's completely meaningless. Now, tearing your garments, what this probably would have been was just about a six to eight inch tear at the top of the garment. That could mean a couple of different things in that culture. Today, they would lock you up and label you with hyperactive disrobe disorder. But Genesis 37 makes it clear that tearing your clothes was a way of demonstrating a way of mourning. Joshua 7 demonstrates it was a way of expressing that you were in distress. Mark 14 shows it was a way to protest blasphemy. And here, what's the expression mean? The expression was a way to show a passionate protest. It was intended to cause the people to stop what they were doing. They wanted the people to understand that they were not these false gods. They were men just like them. Think back to Acts chapter 12. Do you guys remember what we saw? Herod Antipas. Now, he had no problem. He took the worship of men. He didn't have a problem with it. He was worshipped as a god. And then what happened to him? He was eaten by worms, and he died because he did not give the glory to God. And you must think that this must have entered in the minds of Paul and Barnabas at some point. You see, it seems in every single age, men of religion, they fall into the trap of allowing worship to fall on them instead of pointing them to the Lord. Once Paul and Barnabas got their attention, 
It became clear that they had to start at the very most basic level here by explaining to these people who God truly is. So think about this. Think about what Paul was telling them. Any religion of the world is pretty weak if the worship includes worship of men as gods. So Paul describes their religion as useless. Their worship was in vain. Their worship was empty and worthless at best. Their worship was simply idolatry. They needed to turn to the living God instead of the dead idols of men. Now, before things get a little sporty in this text, let's say it like that, Paul makes three main points about God. Catch these with me. First, he says that God is the creator of all life. God made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. And the second point that Paul makes is that he points to the patience and mercy of God. Notice what he said here in verse 16. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their, what ways? Own ways. So let's think very carefully about what Paul was saying here. In the past, God still had his people in the nation of Israel. Israel was his witness to the world. Now certainly God wanted men and women to come to know him, but the difference is that in the past, the Gentiles were not directly confronted about their pagan worship, but that now was changing. Now, God still has his people in the body of Christ, in the church. But God is sending his people all throughout the regions of the world to confront the false religions and to urge these people to turn to the living God. If you're following along with me, turn over to chapter 17 in Acts. Now, Paul was speaking at Athens, and he was proclaiming that he knew who their unknown God was. And let's pick it up in verse 24 and notice with me in Acts 17 what Paul tells them. He says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And then let's skip down to verse 28. Notice what he said. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. In other words, let's stop with the idols already. God is not like silver statues or gold statues or stone. God is not shaped by art or made by man. And then notice this in verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now let's be very careful as we understand this. Paul was not saying that the lost people from times past are in heaven. That's not what he was saying. Paul was saying God, in his mercy, allowed men and women to continue in their rebellion against him. God allowed men and women to go and worship idols. But that time is coming to an end. And it starts with men and women proclaiming the gospel of Christ and confronting people who are doing such things. 
You see, once the gospel of Christ is preached, men and women are then forced to make a conscious decision before God. The narrow path of life in Christ or the wide path of destruction. So head back to chapter 14. Notice the third point that Paul brings out in verse 17 in your text. In case the people were not thinking that God in times past didn't give them any indication of who he is, Paul says not true. Notice what he tells them. He says, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. You see, the people there may have never heard of the true God before, but they had seen the results of his mercy and his grace. This is often referred to as the general revelation of God. Now this is, in my mind, another version of Romans chapter 1 where we read, For since the creation of his world is invisible attributes are clearly seeing, be understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are what? Without excuse. See, men and women have always been without excuse before God because his creation points to the truth of who he is. The rain from heaven, the crops producing harvest, the provision of all that God gives to man is evidence that points directly to him. It points to his power. It points to his grace. It points to his love. So if an unbeliever wants to ask you what proof do we have that there is a God, you can literally tell them that the evidence, it's all around them. And these men and women of Lystra, they would have already believed in the providence of the gods. But what was new to them is that there is only one true God who is the source of all creation. The men and women of Lystra were without excuse. They had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They had worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And now each of them, every single one of them, was responsible for what they did in response to the gospel of Christ. Now the impression that I get from this text is that Paul and Barnabas were cut off before they were done, before they were able to fulfill their witness for Christ here. It seems they didn't even get to urge the people to place their faith or trust in Christ. Because verse 18 records that they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. And then notice what happens starting now in verse 19. Jews from Iconium, which remember was another 20 miles away. And Jews from Antioch in Pisidia, which was another 100 miles away. These Jews were so hateful, so upset, that they were so dedicated in their opposition to the gospel of Christ, they arrived and they persuaded the multitudes, which is another testimony that it's usually never a good idea to follow the crowds. You see, if you see the crowds going in one direction, it's probably a safe bet that you should head the other. It's pretty amazing how quick this crowd was led astray. But it shouldn't surprise us because they were unredeemed. Unredeemed men and women are always led astray by the impulses of the world. And once this crowd had been persuaded, they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now somehow, Barnabas had been spared. Good for Barnabas, honestly. (laughs) Somehow he'd been spared. But when word got to those that had trusted in Christ, they went out to Paul and they gathered around him. Perhaps they knew he wasn't dead. And they're seeking to protect him from any further persecution. I believe that Luke makes it clear here with the wording used that Paul didn't actually die. Some take that position. I don't. I think the wording indicates that he didn't die, but he appeared dead. He was on, on close 
close death's door. I mean, he was close. Paul rose up and was able to make it back into the city. And to do this, to go right back into the city, tells me all I need to know about the character of the man Paul. It tells me that this man believed the words that he spoke and that God supernaturally strengthened him because you don't just get up from a stoning and go back that same day. But safety dictated that they needed to move on again. And the next day, Paul and Barnabas headed to Derby. Now, Derby was another 60 miles to the southeast of Lystra, several more days on foot. But a lot happened here. Luke doesn't give us all of the details. But he does tell us that when they got to Derby, once again, we see that Paul and Barnabas did not back down. They didn't pause and reconsider their mission because they had gone through a little bit of opposition. At this point, they'd been chased out of three different cities. Paul had been stoned. Paul had been left for dead. And yet, what does verse 21 record? They preached the gospel to the people of Derby, And many people came to know Christ as Savior. Not only did Paul and Barnabas continue in their witness for Christ, but they did not take the easy way out. They could have. Because the easiest path for them would have been to keep heading east. It would have been for them to continue down the road another 150 miles or so to Paul's hometown of Tarsus. And from there, they could have easily made the trip back to their church, their home church in Antioch. That would have been the easy route. That would have been the simple thing to do. That would have been the quickest. That would have been the safest path for them. But they chose not to. Instead, they chose to head right back to the cities where they had faced their persecution for their faith. And notice what Luke tells us. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Why? Why go back? Because it's not good enough just to preach the gospel of Christ. You need to share your faith and disciple people. That's the purpose. He says right here, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas chose to put the needs of the church ahead of of their own needs. They understood the importance of building up the newer converts to the faith, spending time with them, instructing them in the Word of God, urging them to continue on in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, and reminding these Christians, as they had witnessed and had seen in the life and ministry of Paul, that those that dare to carry out the name of Christ, those that actually live it out publicly, those that live a godly life should expect persecution and tribulation until we go to be with our Savior, Jesus Christ, and live in his eternal kingdom. The other day, I stumbled across a true story. It was one that moved me a little more than most. It was about a man by the name of Charles McCoy. Now, Charles was pastoring a Baptist church in Oyster Bay, New York, when at age 72, his denomination in all their wisdom mandated that he needed to retire. Charles was a lifelong bachelor. He'd never been married. He had cared for his mother as long as she had lived. And in his spare time, he had earned seven university degrees, including two PhDs, one from Dartmouth and one from Columbia. But now at age 72... He was being forced out of the pastorate because he was considered too old. He said he got depressed by this. He said he just laid on his bed thinking his life was absolutely over and that he hadn't really done anything for Jesus Christ. His words, listen, I've been a pastor of this church for so many years and nobody really wants me much. What have I done for Christ? 
I spent an awful lot of time working for degrees, but what does that count for? I haven't won very many to the Lord. Well, a week later, he met a Christian pastor from India. And knowing that he would be retiring soon, just on an impulse, he asked the man to actually preach in his church. So the man did. And after the service, the pastor from India asked Charles, he said, would you come to India and preach for me? Well, Charles explained that he was being forced to retire, to move into a home for the elderly down in Florida. But the man, he insisted. Well, McCoy, he prayed about it. He decided to go. And the people in his church were upset by this. The young chairman of the deacon said to him at the time, listen to his question. He said, what if you die in India? His response is just as close to heaven from India as it is from Oyster Bay. <laughs> Amen. He sold and gave away almost everything he owned. What little he would bring, he put in one of those trunks. And he booked a one-way trip to India at age 72. It was actually his first trip outside of the United States. He'd never even flown on a plane before. And when he arrived in Bombay, he learned that his trunk with all of his belongings that he had left was completely lost. And all he had now were the clothes he wore, his wallet, and his passport. And the address of some missionaries in Bombay that he had actually clipped out of a magazine before he had left. So he asked for directions. And he got on a bus, and he headed for their home. But once he got there, he realized that on the bus, his wallet and his passport had also been taken from him. They'd been stolen. Now he was down to just the clothes on his back. When he knocked on the door of the missionary's home, he was greeted with a polite smile and a blank look. Like, who are you, and what are you doing here? You see, these missionaries were not expecting him, and the man who had invited him was still back in the United States, and he was chickening out. He was staying in the United States. He wasn't coming back to India. Well, determined to share Jesus Christ, he decided to try to make an appointment with the mayor of Bombay. Now, this is a big city. This is a city of over 12 million people. You don't just get an appointment with the mayor. They tried telling him that. Well, Dr. McCoy prayed about it, and went anyway. And he presented his calling card to the receptionist, kind of like Willie does. Willie's always got that orange calling card, if you notice, with the gospel on it. It's one of the things I love about Willie. Well, the receptionist, she looked at it carefully. And then she disappeared through a door. And she returned telling him to come back at exactly 3 o'clock. Well, McCoy, he did. He did go back that afternoon to find a reception in his honor, attended by the most important civic leaders in Bombay. You see, the city fathers had been greatly impressed by his height because McCoy stood at six feet four inches. They were impressed by his distinguished gray-white hair and his long list of degrees on his card. So they figured in their misunderstanding that he had to be someone important, maybe even connected with the President of the United States. So old Dr. McCoy was able to preach to these leaders for half an hour. And he shared his testimony from Christ. Now, among the men that were gathered that day was the director of India's version of West Point, the National Defense Academy at Pune. And he was so impressed by what he heard that he invited McCoy to preach there. 
And then he kept getting invited back. More invitations came. Soon they were pouring in from all over India. And McCoy, he began a traveling ministry, preaching the gospel and starting churches. At age 72, a brand new ministry was launched for McCoy for 16 years until he died at age 88. Now, this dauntless old man, he circled the globe many times preaching the gospel. There is a church in Calcutta today because of his preaching. And another one in Hong Kong because of his preaching. He never had more than enough money to get him to the next place that he needed to go. He died one afternoon in a hotel in Calcutta, resting for a meeting he was to preach at that evening. But he had indeed found one thing. He found himself as close to heaven there as he would have been at his church in Oyster Bay, New York, or in a retirement home in Florida. An old man waiting to die at the age of 72 left everything he had ever known in response to God's call to go and preach the gospel around the world. Amen? You know, just a few months after our text, Paul would write to his new Galatian friends in these same cities. He would say this, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. It's doubtless that Paul was referring to the scars left upon him from the stoning that he had received in Lystra. And when he wrote later on to the Corinthians about having been stoned, it was Lystra he had in mind. See, what does this all teach us? Paul teaches us to worry less about our own comfort, worry less about ourselves, worry less about our feelings, and more about sharing the gospel of Christ. When God sends, men strong in faith step in to preach the word of his grace. So may you be counted faithful when the Lord calls each of you, knowing that when Christ comes to establish his kingdom on earth, the tribulations that we face now of living for Jesus Christ, they're going to pale in comparison to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Always looking up, Christians, waiting for the return of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.